0: There are many things in the scriptures that are both comforting and challenging to the reader. Comforting because we know that this book reveals the truth about who God is. Comforting because we know that it provides the necessary truth to experience freedom from both the penalty and the power from sin. Comforting because we know that this book also provides wisdom to know how to navigate through this life. An insight to know what's to come after this life. Such a fountain of comfort. But it is also a book that challenges. It's a book that gives us the revealed will of God and comes against the desires of the flesh. It attacks man's selfish ambition in this life. It calls us to a standard of sacrificial love on a daily basis. And it preaches something that is contrary to the culture that you and I are so saturated by. But if there's another reason why this book, which is The Revealed Will of God, is challenging, it's probably one that you and I can really relate to. And it's for this. I can't help but flip through these pages and realize that there is a standard for the passion of the things of God that is honestly difficult to find in others, and more importantly, maybe even difficult for me to relate to in my own heart. There's a passion. Because we can make the mistake either one or two ways we can see this book as as god's word and fail to realize that it is actually recorded by people with real personalities people that actually walked on this earth and then the other extreme is that we see this as a book written by man and fail to see that it is divinely inspired by the holy spirit we want the balance and i think of certain verses in this bible that that is like a mirror to my heart And it brings me to a place to say, is this where you're at right now? And I don't feel condemned, and neither should anybody, but it challenges. I think of Paul in Galatians 4.19 when he speaks about the church. And he calls them my little children. My little children. He's He's not just speaking to them as brothers and sisters. He speaks as a father to kids in the spiritual sense. And he goes, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now many of us in here, can ex- we, can, we can express and even agree to the pain that we might have in our hearts for somebody to be saved. Our brother in blood, our sister, our parents, our friends, our coworkers. I'm sure all of us have at least one ache in our hearts for one specific individual to say, I, I really, Lord, I really want to see them saved. But Paul is not speaking about people being saved. He's speaking about those who are saved. And the anguish in his heart is not for them to be saved. It's for Christ to be formed in them. Many of us, if we're honest, are just satisfied if somebody confesses Christ, but Paul didn't stop there. Paul was like, I want Christ to be formed in every element of your life. I want you to be molded and shaped in such a way in which you resemble your Savior. This was was a pain in Paul's heart. And then I read it and I go, is that a pain in my heart for people that I know that are Christians? Or am I just satisfied with my brothers and sisters confessing Christ? No, is there a desire, is my prayer, Lord... Form them are my my prayers for my kids not just to go to church but Christ be formed in them this is what I'm talking about things like this or you read something like in Hebrews ten thirty four, where the author of Hebrews describes the Christians that he's speaking to and look how he describes the response to persecution For you had compassion on those in prison and you, look at, this blows my mind, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So as he's describing what many of us in here cannot relate to on the level that they experience, unless you come from a certain background that does, these Christians, because of their background as Jews, were persecuted by other Jews. And you know what their persecution was? Imagine this: you wake up tomorrow morning to a knock on your door by the government or by ruling authorities that had the ability to do this, look at you straight in the eyes and say, Are you the Christian family that's living on so-and-so street? And you, you say, Yes, we are a Christian family. And he says, Okay, we have come with the authority to kick you out of your house. Have a car? Yeah, we have a car. Give me the keys to your car. You have 5 minutes to grab whatever you can in this small little bag, you and your kids out of here. You want to you want to walk with this Messiah, huh? And Paul says some believe it's Paul, but the author of Hebrews says they joyfully accepted that. They didn't just Go with the flow. They didn't just say, okay, I guess this is what it is. They were praising God in light of it. And I read that and I go, Lord, I don't know. If somebody were to knock on my door tomorrow morning and say, get out of here. Your clothes on your back is the only thing that you can take with you. What do I do? Where do I go? Am I going to call up somebody from church? Am I? They're going to have room for me? What's going on here? And and the author says, no, you joyfully embrace that. Would I? And so I, I see these scriptures over and over again. I'm sure you have as well. And I bring this to our attention today so that we might examine our own hearts and be challenged by the passion that God invites us to experience by the working of his Holy Spirit. And for today's message, I want to focus on three words that describe a passion that is most definitely going to be a challenge to all of us. Three words, three simple words that says so much. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Please turn your Bibles to Revelations 22. Because these words are found near the end of the entire library of scriptures. These three words come at the end of the last book known as the book of Revelation. We see in 22, verse 17, something astounding. John writes, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. See, the book of Revelation reveals so much. It reveals pretty much the last chapter of human history. And in detail, it shows us the coming judgment that will come upon the wicked. In detail, it describes the full redemption of the saints. And in detail, it gloriously declares the earthly reign and the eternal reign of Jesus Christ. That's what the book is all about. Symbolism, yes, but the the message is so clear. It's talking about where all of this is coming to. Your life, my life, everything All roads are going to lead to what the book of Revelation describes as the last chapter of human history. And so marvelous, so marvelous and glorious are these things being written out for us. That John by the Spirit pens the response of even the third person of the Trinity to these truths. Right after verse 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. For the churches. This is a message for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. You, you see that the Holy Spirit, through John, expresses what the Holy Spirit is feeling. And the Spirit is so excited, he says, come. After Jesus gives this word about himself and what is to happen... Think about it. The third person of the Godhead is brimming with excitement only to express it in this word, come. And That makes sense in light of the fact that John 16 14 tells us that a part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ. And everything about the book of Revelation is when Christ will explode in his glory before every eye, before every man. No wonder it's the the craving of the Spirit to say, Come, since He longs for Him to be exalted on the earth. But He doesn't just say that that is the expression and the desire of the Holy Spirit. He says the Spirit and the bride. The bride. The bride, which is a name that describes the church. The bride, which is the church that makes up for the people who were sinners and put their faith and trust in Christ. This is not just the Holy Spirit's desire. You see the desire of the universal church, the true believing people of God that also say, come. Don't stay, come. And here is where the challenge lies for you and I. There is a difference in believing in the return of Christ with desiring it. Let me say that again. There is a great difference with believing in the return of Christ and actually desiring it. And we know that it doesn't even end here. Because we might say, yes, the Holy Spirit desires this. And yes, we might say, this is how the church should respond to Christ. Declaring his return. But look at verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Don't you love that those are the last recorded words of Jesus? The last recording words of Jesus in the Bible is, surely I am coming soon. And what's amazing about what he says is the response to it, and it is John himself personally. Not the bride, not the spirit, but as an individual. John himself says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is challenging. This is challenging for so many reasons, because, again, I say that it's one thing to believe in the second coming. It's a whole other thing to desire it. The Spirit desires it. The church desires it. And, and John himself says, Amen. I invite you to come, Lord. The question I present you and I this morning is when you yourself as a person, not acknowledging what the Holy Spirit responds, not acknowledging what the church universally responds, you as a person individually, when you hear Jesus say, Surely I'm coming soon, to you, just without anything, just your heart right now, what happens? What happens? What happens? What is the response to that statement? Surely I'm coming soon. What goes on here? John says, I invite you to come. Lord, if you're coming soon, then come now. This is how John responds. And it seems as though the early church promoted this type of attitude. Not only promoted it, they lived it. They had this internal cry. And I want to make this disclaimer. It is not to say that you having this desire means that you are not present in the moment. It's not to say that if you and I have this desire that we do not, this is a scary word for people that want to be serious in the Christian life. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy things in life. God forbid we enjoy his blessings, right? It's not to say, but it does mean that in the midst of our service, in the midst of our growing relationship with friends and even even a spouse or our children, there is this sense in which we do desire to see Christ come. I just want to show this in different portions of the Bible. Here's one. In Hebrews 9.28, look how the author speaks about the return of Christ. In Hebrews 9.28, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but look, but to save those who are not just waiting for him, eagerly waiting for him. Again, there's the challenge. Not just acknowledging that he's coming back, but that he's coming back for a people that are excited for him to come back. Wanting him to come back. Doing life within the back of their minds, knowing that he's coming back. And I think this is a challenging thing. And it's challenging because this attitude, maybe many believers would say, I know I should have that, but I I can't come to terms with it, if we're being honest. And I think there are reasons why. I think there are real identifiable reasons why even Christians are not really excited about Jesus coming back. They believe it. They they want it. I mean, we want to go to heaven. But I'm not talking about that this morning. I'm talking about the challenging portion of the scripture that puts in our face a people that are longing for it. I'm sure there are many reasons. I'm going to just give us three. Three reasons why maybe we are not in line with John, maybe not in light with the author of Hebrews and different portions of the Bible that talk about a people that are, that are just waiting for that trumpet sound. Number one, we are not as exposed to brokenness that would cause us to cry for his return. This is so needed for the people of the West it's quite possible that one strong reason for many not to have this desire in their hearts is because the things in their lives seem to be going pretty smoothly. Think about it. Financially, physically, socially, not only are things going smoothly, but things are, things are actually being abundantly blessed and flourishing. And so when it comes to believers... In light of all of this, it's a difficulty to understand what is entailed with Jesus coming back. But I can tell you this, that believers who know suffering in a real way, in a long-term way, in a lifestyle type of way, can understand what John is saying here. This seems to be found more on the lips of those who are experiencing pain in their bodies that no medicine that no treatment that no doctor can find a final solution to and the only hope for that ache in your mind that ache in your organs that ache in your muscles is the promise of a brand new body in Christ this come Lord Jesus seems to be found more on the lips of those who almost have a daily prayer for his return because of the The pain of losing loved ones in Christ. And knowing that when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back alone. And when I go to Jesus, I'm not going to just see him alone, but those that I've lived life with and have seen death, remove them from my life. You can desire that, you know. This cry, come Lord Jesus, is, is perhaps more found on the lips of those who are living in parts of the world that you and I understand but cannot really comprehend because they are being persecuted for their faith in torturous ways. In ways in which we can't even comprehend in terms of how we're living here. The severe conditions, the constant fear, the the worry that your family will be ripped apart, the worry that your possessions will be stripped, that's still real today. And I can guarantee you that those people in those parts of the world have a cry for come, Lord Jesus. Here's proof of that. In Isaiah 25, 9, there's a prophetic word about what it's going to be like on that day when he comes. And it says, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. Not just we were surprised by him. We have waited for him. That he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. It tells us twice. We waited for him. We've been waiting for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now why are they so excited? Why were they waiting? Why were they anticipating? Why were they praying for his return? Well, verse 8 tells us in the same chapter, right prior to this. We understand. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And then it's followed up with, on that day, people say, we've been waiting. Because I've lived a life of great pain for my Christian life, my Christian faith. I've lived an ordeal of different things that have come against my soul. I have I've been marked by affliction. And so naturally I've called out for Jesus to come and to rescue me. We know even early on in the book of Revelation that there will be some who will call upon the Lord to avenge them for the blood that was shed for their faith. It's the cry of those who know and have been exposed to brokenness. And that's hard for us here when things are just think we live in a great country, despite all the craziness, you didn't have to worry about sneaking out of your house this morning to get to church. You didn't meet in a cave. You're not in some barn house. At four o'clock in the morning with other people with a triangle and a broken guitar singing to God. But those people, oh, they know that God is worthy of worship. But at the same time, in their, in their brokenness, they're saying, Lord, I want, I want you to come and restore me. And maybe, maybe we can't relate to suffering. And this is not to promote you and I actively seeking out to suffer so that we can activate this cry, come Lord Jesus. That's just ridiculous. But if there is a way in which your heart and ours can be stirred towards this, it's not maybe to look at our own lives and see the brokenness, but just look around you. Just look around. And again, it's so masked today, isn't it? It's so masked with our memes and all these things and constant entertainment. Listen, beneath all of that, there is a dying and broken world. So dark, it would make your stomach turn. To realize it. You know, one of the insights that full-time ministry gives you is that you really see on a broad scale how broken people really are. That when you drive through these streets and you see all these houses, consider the fact that in those houses there are different scenarios and different family lives and different marriages and different conditions and children and people. and, And there is a depth of brokenness that if we were to just investigate a little bit, you would realize that it is impossible to solve all of this in a thousand lifetimes. We've been trying to do it for thousands of years, and the only solution is for the Prince of Peace to come. It's the only solution. Government policies, psychological tactics, all these things trying to be implemented to try to bring some kind of structure to homes and to society, it will not work. That's what the Second Coming is all about. That because of the power of Jesus Christ, when he rules and reigns on this earth, it will bring people into submission to righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit across all lands. So much so that people will not know how to do and how to engage in warfare. Scripture tells us that. That they will take their weapons and say, what are we going to do with all of this and turn them into farming equipment? And so perhaps the lack of being exposed to brokenness is a part of the reason why there is a lack of a cry in our hearts to say, come Lord Jesus. But engage in ministry long enough. It doesn't even have to be full time and you'll see a brokenness so real that it will bring you to a place to realize Jesus is the only answer in coming back. But maybe it's not just that. There's another ingredient to why come Lord Jesus isn't really a cry in believers' hearts. And I think a second reason is that we are not very informed of what is to come when he comes. We're not very informed. Part of that can be even just teaching. Teaching about this life so much. And that's even true. A pastor made a, a, a wonderful observation that even our worship songs recently have been less about heaven. That used to be a very prominent theme in hymns and worship songs in the past. But nowadays, it's very, very rare where you, you hear a brand new song about Heaven. And if I were to truly reflect on on what I believe life will be like when Christ comes, what would come to my mind? If I were to really just sit down and think, what will it be like when he comes? I think for many, if they were honest, they would think that it would be slightly better. Slightly better. It's going to obviously be better. But, like, this is my life and this is Jesus coming back. Because we look around us and we think, how can I get better than, than this? How can I get better than the relationships that I have now? How can I get better than the, the marriage that I want to have in my life? How, how can I get better than the places that I want to travel and see in this world? Can it really be that much better? But what scripture says is that every element of your existence and mine that is able to find pleasure will be paled in comparison to another worldly and eternally satisfying joy that our natural minds cannot even conjure up. That's what the Bible says. I mean, it's going to be so amazing that you need a new brain to comprehend it in your glorified bodies and mind. Relationally, there is going to be a communion with the saints. There is going, going to be an understanding of one another, a peace and a joy in our presence, in the presence of God, that will eclipse your relationships that you have now. This is going to be shocking, even the one that you desire in marriage. Do you, do you realize that heaven will be so heavenly that even the highest attempt of satisfying a relational need in marriage is not even necessary in heaven. I know that's hard for us to understand because marriage is appropriately given for companionship and for for intimacy, but heaven is so heavenly that it's not even required. I don't think heaven doesn't have marriage just because we don't need procreation. I think heaven doesn't need marriage because we're already going to be married to him. It's going to be so intense with love and affection and companionship and pleasure that I won't need to find it in another person. This is, and you're sitting there, you're thinking, really? Really? That's what it says. It's right there. Jesus said it on more than one occasion. Relationally. Then we think even physically. I think about where our hearts and minds will never know grief again. We'll never know pain again. We'll never know sickness again. We'll never know disappointment because even relationally, as good as that person might be, as great as your friends might be, we are infected by sin. We disappoint each other from time to time. It happens. And even in my own body, uh, the the chemical imbalances and and the things in which they betray me, even in my desire to serve God, those things will cease forever. Revelation says these are going to be former things. We can't wrap our minds around it. Listen, even geographically, that even the world as we know it will be reorganized, will be transformed, will be under the rule and reign of Christ in which even lands will be displaced and mountains will be lifted up and there will be a beauty, there will be a, a, a bliss, there will be a glory and even creation that the, the best place you want to go, the, the, go to on this side of heaven will not even compare to Every element of our universe will be altered because of his return. And Psalm 16, 11 says in plain and clear, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. See, that truth is hard to understand because we're not experiencing it. We can, yes, in his presence in some sense now, but there's an eternal understanding of it in which it says, even right after, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, eternally. There's no boredom in heaven. And people always wonder because our minds are so finite, like, what are we actually gonna do for? Like, that's a long time. I go on vacation for a week and I already wanna come back home. And then I come back home and I need a vacation from my vacation. But when Christ returns, that thought will not even be a thought. Pleasures forevermore. What pleases you in this life? What gives you joy? What gives you satisfaction? Is it humor? Whatever it is, all of that will be paled in comparison to what Christ will offer in his presence. You know, preaching is really hard. You know why? Because you have to try to explain something that's almost inexplainable. So, forgive me if I sound repetitive, and forgive me if I'm limited in trying to describe something that our minds can't even paint. But I believe true Christians, why, a reason why they don't have that cry, come Lord Jesus, is because they really think Jesus coming back is going to interrupt their lives. It's like, come Lord Jesus, but just not yet. And I think a reason for that is because we think that when he comes, he's going to remove something of pleasure in our lives. That we are experiencing or we have yet to experience. And what I'm here to tell you today is that no matter what season you're in or no matter what you're anticipating, there will be no loss when he returns. There will only be gain. There will only be gain. if there is a tension in the Bible between Jesus returning and how we're living this life, Paul described it the best. If there is a tension in which, come Lord Jesus, but Paul described it the best. And he says in the popular and well-known verse in Philippians 1, 22 to 24, he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. That's the tension, right? If I am to live in the flesh, fine, but then he says right after, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for well, that is far better. So there's this inner turmoil. I want to be with Christ. It's so much better. I mean, you're talking about a man who's been to the third heaven. You're talking about a man who had an intimacy with Christ like no other. And so surely he understood the better part about being with Jesus. But even in his, in his humanity, he was like, but I, can't, I don't know if I can really choose it, but his reason... His mindset was not so that I can have some kind of pleasure, and it's not a sinful pleasure even. His reason between the tension of staying and going was, if I stay, I can do more for him. If he doesn't return right away, it means I can touch more people for him. I can glorify him on this side of heaven more. That was the tension. The tension was between fruitful labor or forever enjoying the bliss of his glory. That was the tension. And that's fine to have that tension. Because I know the natural questions that might even come after a message like this, like, should we say come Lord Jesus when there are still souls that don't know Christ? That is the paradox of the Christian life amongst all other paradoxes. And Paul had that tension. And it's a holy tension. It's not a sinful one. But I come to the last point in this short message this morning. Maybe the come Lord Jesus cries is because we haven't been exposed to brokenness like others have, that have that cry. Maybe it's because we are a little bit uninformed about what is to come when he does come. But lastly, maybe it's because we're not as close to the person as we should be. I hope nobody feels guilty this morning. I hope this would be a stirring thing for our hearts to be invited into. The possibility of knowing what it's like to cry it. Come, Lord Jesus. I come back to the words in Revelation 22, verse 20, where Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And and John doesn't say, amen, come, my glorified body. He did not say, amen, come, the reunion of the saints that I've lost due to persecution. He doesn't say, amen, come, the eternal home that has been prepared for me and in which I will enjoy for all eternity. He says, amen, come, Lord Jesus. He's talking about a person. He's not talking about a government necessarily. He's not talking about a way of life necessarily. He's not talking about an escape of things necessarily. And and guess what? We can have those desires because they are spelled out in the Bible for a reason. But for John... When he heard, surely I am coming soon, what he had in mind was you. It's about finally meeting the one that I've spent so many Friday night Bible studies sitting and hearing about. It's about finally seeing the face of the one in which I've been trying to study and interpret through these pages all of my life. It's about finally seeing the one that I've prayed to but have never seen. One that I've served but I've never heard his voice saying well done necessarily. One that I've received so much blessings throughout my life. The one who saved my soul in the midst of a a depraved and wicked generation. It's about finally seeing him eye to eye. To say come Lord Jesus is to say I long to see your face. And there are many in this world that can testify, many in this world that can testify to the ache of the heart of what it's like to fall in love with someone. And because of circumstances being separated from each other for a season of time not knowing when they will be reunited to be together forever in marriage. Many people can testify to that pain. I know many stories of people that have been engaged only to be separated for years before they can come together in marriage again. And I, and I think, in light of this with John, I think of a man who has to leave his future bride to be, his wife to be. And he doesn't know when he's coming back. He doesn't know when he's coming back. But as he's separated from her physically, he sends letters. He sends letters from time to time. And he even sends gifts. And he even, knowing her situation, brings about provision for her. And then on the opposite end, you, you can see this, this wife to be, this bride who's going about her day-to-day, who's meeting with friends socially, who, who's doing what she needs to do, and at the same time is also sending letters in return, and at the same time is receiving with thanksgiving the, the gifts that her husband-to-be gave, and, and she is just relishing in the love and, and just hoping and praying for that day where they will be reunited again, not knowing. And as wonderful as those letters are and a day like ours, as wonderful as FaceTime is and and the gifts that we get from time to time, there's nothing more that she or he wants than to be in their presence without separation, without distance, without hindrance. However you love Jesus now and whatever you know of him now, there will be a time in which he will reveal himself in such a way that you will spend an eternity of an eternities basking in his glory. The verses in 2 Thessalonians 1.10. After Paul describes the judgment for those who do not believe in the gospel, he talks about what it's going to be like when Jesus does return for his saints. And it says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, look at this, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. I can guarantee you this, that when you and I step into his presence, we're not going to give him a high five and say, thanks for saving me. You will be stunned by his beauty. You will almost be paralyzed by his holiness and the mixture of his love that will be radiating from his throne You will almost come to a place of standing still for thousands of years just because you are now exposed to his glory in a way in which you are able to retain it and not be eradicated because of it. He will be marveled at. Do you know what you and I will be occupied by? I promise you that the streets of gold are going to get old. Those pearly gates, they will, they will get our attention for a little bit. But when he is there, all eyes will be on him. And you think about those creatures that are full of eyes in Revelation. That says something. That symbolism of them having full of eyes, them having all these eyes, says something about him that it requires all of these eyes to just even register the information of who he is. That there's so much about him that two eyes are not even enough to be able to behold him. And please do not forget that it was John the Beloved that said, Amen, come Lord Jesus. A man who is intimate with the Son of God when he walked on the face of the earth. A man who laid his head on his bosom. And a man who surely desired to experience intimacy again. And I think that says something about you and I, that the closer we get to know him on this side of heaven, naturally will the result be, Lord, I I can't wait to see you. You find believers like that today. You find believers that when they talk about Jesus and they talk about facing him, tears fill up their eyes. And again, I come back to the beginning of the message. This is challenging. It's challenging because it's like, so am I supposed to understand this as, come Lord Jesus, I have no other desire on the earth? No. But it does beg the question, is that desire there anyway? Because synonymous with come Lord Jesus is, in the prayer, the Lord's prayer is, let your kingdom come. That's the same thing. But I see, let your kingdom come, Followed by, give us this day our daily bread. That's another desire. So it's not a matter of this is your only desire. If you're truly in love with Jesus, you have no other desire other than for him to come. I don't think the the Bible provides that. I I believe the Bible provides a balance. And that yes, I am on this earth and there are things that I long to do for him. And there are needs that I have that have to be met by him. But if you were to see the category of my desires, you will surely find... A shining one that says, Come, Lord Jesus. If it is so challenging for you and I to come to that place honestly, you know what's wonderful? It says that the Spirit and the bride say, Come. I need the Holy Spirit. If that's the Spirit's desire and the Spirit lives in me, then Holy Spirit, give me the desire that you have for Him. Isn't that wonderful? I don't have to hear a message like this and feel guilty leaving home. I don't remember the last time I said, come Lord Jesus. No, I can say, Lord, if the third person of the Godhead so wants you to be glorified, to say, come, would you let me experience that in my heart? Would you do that in my heart? I don't know how to get there. I have other desires, relational desires, ministry desires but I want to be so in love with you like the Holy Spirit is that in the midst of all the busyness and everything else in this life, I would want to be able to safely respond to surely I am coming soon with just come. Just come. That's what we're going to ask the Holy Spirit for. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Father, as we hear your word, we're challenged. We're challenged by the commands. We're challenged by the standards. We're we're challenged by the attitudes that we see of the saints of old. But Lord, we are not feeling condemned. And if anybody is, Lord, lift it off of them. And let them realize that this is an invitation to partner with the Holy Spirit. And to know something of an intimate cry. Lord, if, if we're not exposed to brokenness in our own lives, we're not looking for suffering to activate that cry, but give us the eyes to see the brokenness around us to realize, yes, the gospel is the solution, but also is the final coming of Jesus to bring an end to it once and for all. Help us realize that in your coming will you ultimately be glorified and we are after your glory. Lord, we also pray that if we are ill-informed or maybe misinformed or maybe not as informed about what is to come when you return, open our eyes to the scriptures. Open our eyes to the glimpses of your promises throughout this book. Open our eyes to the realities of what is to come. That as we look around this, this broken world, we know that there is a day in which every facet of our existence will be influenced by your coming. And finally, Lord... We're not after the perks. Make us so in tune with you, intimately, that we would have an ache in our hearts for you to come. I can't, I can't work that out myself. I see it in my Bible. I see that John said, amen, come Lord Jesus. I see that the church says, come, I don't know if it's in me. I love you, Lord. I desire to serve you, but I don't know if it's gone to the place where I can actually say, Lord, interrupt my life with your presence forever. Would you let my heart come to that place where I can, I can know your blessings on this side of heaven, but, but really want you more than all of that that I can enjoy relationships and I can enjoy things that you've bestowed, but at the same time say, I just can't wait to see him. Bring us there as we worship you, Lord. We lean on you like John did. In Jesus' name we pray.